Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Be sure to check out The Contrarians on iTunes, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. We're also on SoundCloud, and don't forget about our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter, at JamesAlexMattis, and at Ovnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Time for the podcast. Hello and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. We are here this week again in week two, episode number 22. Uh, Part two in our political arc that we are doing, uh, previous episode, was The American President, directed by Rob Reiner, and we got to see what life would be like with Mike Douglas as the President of the United States. The answer was, uh, I don't know about for the country, but he he would get laid a lot. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Once he cracked the, the mystery of like, oh, I'm a widower, and that makes me irresistible. For this episode, we're going to see what it would be like if Tim Matheson was the governor of Washington. Yes. Tim Matheson, no Matthew Modine, which was a problem I had throughout the movie. <laughs> this week, we are visiting the 1996 comedy classic Tommy Boy. Or fuck. <laughs> <laughs> This week we're visiting the 1996 comedy classic Black Sheep, starring the incomparable and lost oh too soon Chris Farley and his wacky sidekick David Spade. Yes, whereas uh, in the last episode we explored a movie that was basically a mockery of uh, of just the White House and in politics and just basically the system in the United States. Here we are going to explore a movie that subtly celebrates it. It reflects American values a lot more than the American president did. Agreed. Yes. Unfortunately, uh, not many people were able to catch that. I think that they – well, I'll let them speak for themselves. Starting with Adam Smith from Empire Magazine who called uh, Black Sheep utter unforgivable bilge. What is bilge, Alex? Do you know? I don't know. B-I-L-G-E. I think Empire Magazine is like a British magazine, so it's probably one of those British words. It's a tosser. It's a tosser. <laughs> Rob Blackwelder from Spliced Wire says, I have never wanted to run from a theater so much in my life. Good Lord. He took it personally. Uh, you know who else took it personally? Gene Siskel? <laughs> no, no. Because this he's is one here. of the three movies that he ever walked out of the theater on. Really? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, he. I guess he had... You know, he was he was an honorable man. He was like, I will not write a review of a movie I didn't sit all the way through. Uh, but Susan Lossina, that's that's a really hard last name. I apologize. But uh, she's from USA Today. And she said, Black Sheep is bleedingly awful as it redeems Chris Farley and David Spade, the poor idiots Abbott and Costello. In a comedy so desperately inept, it makes their previous effort, Tommy Boy, look like a minefield of high wit. Fair enough. I disagree, but... <laughs> but you know she is passionate about uh, about her opinion, and she said bleedingly awful. So you know she's just playing on the sheep punness <laughs> of it all. So she gets points for that. Finally, Scott Weinberg, who we've quoted at least two times before mm-hmm. here, so he's I guess he's part of our our contrarian roster somehow. From efilmcritic.com, he says, "Imagine Tommy Boy without all the rapier wit and genius filmmaking technique." 
I counted one sincere laugh in the full 90 minutes. A very jaded view. Jokes on you, Scott Weinberg, because it's 89 minutes, not 90. So he obviously <laughs> he watched the, the cut that was not funny. The producer's cut. The producer's cut, yes. So we begin at a rally for the aforementioned Tim Matheson as he portrays uh, Al Donnelly, the uh, govern- gubernatorial elect to be in Washington. It's just a good old-fashioned rally, gather of the people. We get to see the clear contrast as he's there clad in his suit, nice haircut, well-camped on his way to the podium. We then cut to Chris Farley, who is his brother Mike Donnelly, driving the campaign mobile that it looks like he's painted himself. Which is it's okay. That's not a knock on Farley's character. That just shows from the very beginning his can-do attitude. And Yeah, I honestly I don't see him asking anybody to do it for him. He's just the kind of guy that takes matters into his own hands. But he is the polar opposite of his brother as he is wearing clothes that don't fit him. His hair is uh, an absolute mess. He's a, a bit overweight. and um, But his soul is good. Yeah, he, which... His I mean, will is there. I think we can say... I'm no Chris Farley expert, but to me, it seems like he's playing the Chris Farley character. Yeah, like uh, with a, with a slight tilt. Well, yeah, I mean, there's always like a solid tilt. I mean, I'm, that's not like it's like Robert De Niro. He always plays the Robert De Niro character with a slight tilt. There you go. Mike Donnelly crashes this um, campaign mobile into the movie theater that is by the rally there, basically setting the stage of what's to come in terms of. Uh, Comedy gold. Comedy gold, uh, good-hearted intentions that just go awry, and also just wacky physical comedy. That... Yeah, there is – it's a broad comedy in, in, in that sense, you know, but but it's also a lot of, like, little things. I think uh, uh, the, the director and the screenwriter are probably planting there for more discerning minds or maybe to subconsciously get you this idea that, yeah, this is – this is like they said, Abbott and Costello mm-hmm. for this generation. But there's also more to it. Uh, like you will notice, like little details, like the fact that the campaign truck is being chased by dogs. You know, like that's the opening sequence. He's like being chased by dogs. The more he drives, the more dogs are after him. Well, dogs, I mean, they're they love people. They love good people. It's, uh, they chase. They they bark at bad people, but they they want to play with good people. So that's like that's how you know that he has a pure heart from the very beginning. Because he's not even trying to – he ends up like barking through the megaphone at some point. Mm-hmm. It's just – I think it shows his childlike personality and that's why the movie happens the way it does. We get an insight to his character as well as uh, the lovable character that he works at the local rec center with a, a lot of kids. And um, uh, not necessarily orphans but kids that don't really have parents that can play with them during the day. So he he's a kind-hearted fellow. He just uh, – He's a lovable idiot, I think would be the best way to put it. Yes, which is, you know, this movie was made in the 90s. So it's kind of, every decade has its own vocabulary and its own way to relate to, to the generation that's coming of age in that mm-hmm. era. And the 90s was all about being loud and idiotic, but lovable mm-hmm. if you were a good guy. So I think that it really gets to the core. We need to watch this in context, guys. It's <laughs> It was the 90s. Al Donnelly's campaign manager, Roger, knows that his uh, brother Mike is just a lightning bolt for negative attention. He wants him taken away from the limelight, the spotlight. He wants to have someone pretty much to babysit him for the course of the story that this film takes us on. And that is appointed to Steve Dodd, played by David Spade. He's basically appointed to look after him. And, you know, you can tell right away these two are just going to butt heads. Their style and approach to life couldn't be more different. Which is what makes comedy. It, so so awesome. So uh, 
clearly, I mean, we're under no pretenses here by now. Tommy, Go- Tommy Boy had happened. Uh, so people that came to Black Sheep, they came to see the David Spade and Chris Farley show. And Much like today, you know, to relate it to our younger listeners... They were the Sandler and uh, James of their time. Yes, exactly. So that's uh, that's really what you bought your ticket for. And really, while, while Chris Farley's cool and all, the movie doesn't really start until David Spade, like, his face comes through that it's window. It's like Heat, when Pacino and De Niro are on screen at the same time. You yeah, know. it's the way that, that Heat should have been. <laughs> you know, Heat made you wait half the movie for Pacino and De Niro to be in the same scene, and then they went their separate ways. Whereas like this one, it happens a lot sooner, and then once they're together, they're together for most of the movie. Mm-hmm. That's that's how you handle that kind of stuff. As Steve Dodd tries to find his way to Mike Donnelly, he's just working his way through the local town there in Washington, and we get introduced to our recluse of the film, who is Drake Savage, played by Gary Busey, who kind of just appears for no real reason. I think Steve almost runs him over with his car. And they get into a little verbal altercation. Yes. At the time, you don't know if that's a fateful encounter or if it's just like a cameo because Gary Busey needed the money and he was just like, I'll cameo on this. Uh, always a welcome presence in any movie. Mm-hmm. So I I just saw him and I, I was full of, of hope. And suddenly uh, I, I knew that things were about to get even a th- as good as they were. They were going to get a thousand times better. Uh and he, I mean, I'm not spoiling anything because I'm sure you've all seen this movie before. But, uh, yeah, he comes back later. Well, yeah, exactly. They set the stage for that because um, Steve pisses him off and then he tries to take off in his car, but he gets stuck in traffic. So he just abandons his car and uh, Drake steals his car. So we know that it's going to come back around full circle. Well, do we? I don't know. I mean, this movie was, I, I, I didn't know if I should expect what you usually expect from a normal movie because... Things go crazy once you get Spade and Farley together. So it wouldn't. The third act could have taken place in the moon, and I would have been like, "Yeah, I mean, that's. I don't know what to expect." At first, Steve Dodd tries to kind of incorporate Mike Donnelly, Chris Farley into the campaign, where they go out, uh, just kind of almost in a door-to-door effort to raise awareness of Al Donnelly running for governor. But Mike can't even not screw that up. He he ends up getting dragged behind the wheel of a, a elderly couple's car, and you know, Steve Dodd just there's nothing he can really do make matters worse, Mike Donnelly has become the media magnet for all the tabloids and uh, affiliates that just want to portray Al Donnelly in a bad light. This reflects a lot on politics today with, I think, our media and the way we, we take out political agendas where they shouldn't be. I agree, and I think it's a much more accurate, much more honest portrayal of the media uh, than what we saw in the American president. You know, with an American president, it was all like too melodramatic and, and, and kind of just really would they care that much about her like burning a flag or whatever. Mm-hmm. Whereas like here, this is uh, things get really ugly with Farley that there's like people implicating him in serious crimes. And uh, so, yeah, that seems like the kind of seediness that would happen in real life. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that's a comedy that's actually commenting on something that's it's very, very true and happening right now. We get introduced to our, I guess, the foil, the villain, the Richard Dreyfus of Black Sheep, Governor Tracy, who is the reigning governor running for re-election, played by Christine Ebersole. And I never saw her. Yeah, she <laughs> looks like she looks like an actress that's really familiar, but isn't because you... it's Christine. If I ever saw you <laughs> in another movie, I don't remember. If I never saw you. <laughs> 
Making his triumphant return to the Contrarians podcast, Bruce McGill, who plays the campaign manager for Governor Tracy. The man behind the woman. <laughs> During the surge of unwanted media attention, Mike is caught with a group of young kids drinking. This leads to him being fired from the local rec center, and basically his life is derailed, and then it's just made even worse. We don't know at the time, but some evildoers come to just wreak havoc on his life. Yeah, basically, and actually they implied that it was the two things were a setup. Him, when he was apparently drinking and smoking with these kids, uh, he gets photographed by you know the media. But then later it turns out that, no, he was just talking to them about not smoking and not the dangers drinking. of exactly he was yeah, putting on a show i guess governor tracy you were on something there governor tracy's not the bad guy in this the media i think is the real, she, the real villain. yeah the media is a real villain i mean that's not to say that she's a saint mm -hmm. uh later on we find out like other bad things that she did but really the really rotten core in the movie is the media and then the media is once again they're out there outside the rec center when Chris Farley gets basically framed for arson. It, it, but that's that's the name of the game when you're in politics. You know, he's the vulnerable point on uh, his brother's campaign. So these these mystery evildoers, they set fire to the rec center and make it look like it was his fault. And then the press is right there to take pictures and not ask any questions. Fortunately for Mike and Steve, the first police officer to the scene is Robbie, who is a good close friend of Mike Donnelly. I think he's the real – he is like the trusting citizens in this movie. I think that's what he portrays. He, he's the heart of the, of, of the movie, really, more so than anybody else. Because he knows – he sees the good in Mike Donnelly, and he believes Chris Farley that he didn't start the fire. So he says, you know, get on out of here. I'll tell him that no one was here when I got here, which is not proper protocol for a police officer to follow. It's not, but it's – I'm not going to lie, Alex. I, it was refreshing, and I kind of teared up a little bit because we are so used lately to just the relentless cop bashing, you know, and it's just it just seems like no matter what you do as a police officer, you're going to be questioned and second-guessed. And then here's this cop that just shows up, and he he doesn't hesitate for a second. He just – he just lets the potential arsonist go because he knows that there's no way that Chris Farley would ever set fire to that. And it was just – I was like it, – It's the it, noble lie. Right. But it wouldn't happen in a movie made in 2015. No. You would never get away with that. So I, it's kind of like a relic of – This was before Fruitvale Station. Yes. It's a, it's a simpler, more naive, more innocent America – that it's just it's just no more. And you know what else is a, is a, this this movie is like a living audiovisual record of of time gone by because I kept thinking if only Chris Farley had a smartphone <laughs> and he could just pull it out and take pictures of those guys that were setting fire the, you know instead of him then then you know obviously the movie wouldn't happen but but still you know that's like that that doesn't happen anymore. That's in this day and age it's like everybody would have a phone. It's a good point. The follow-up to this with the campaign manager, Roger, Al Donnelly's campaign manager, his follow-up plan is basically to just take Mike into the woods. He has Steve take him to a cabin in the woods to just completely delocate him from society so that he cannot fuck anything else up. Which, you know, works wonders for us because this is where the movie takes the real turn into just the com comedic bliss right it's not just a normal cabin it's like a cabin from hell mm -hmm. uh so many bad things happen in that cabin that that but that's good because this is a comedy yeah 
There's a bat when they get in there, and they chase it around for a solid five or six minutes. It's it's an epic set piece. I just wrote epic bat set piece. <laughs> that you know, that's the bat that that will just keep on giving as far as as comedic beats. Because he gets on Farley, he gets on Spade, and then they try different things of getting it, of capturing it and killing it. At some point, Spade is just beating on Farley with a mop. <laughs> it's just a barrel of laughs. One thing we do note when they get to the cabin is this giant boulder that sits atop this hill that looks like it's almost on a slide that leads into the cabin. And these hijinks that abound all basically loosen this giant boulder. And it keeps teetering, and we know something's going to happen. It's a good setup because, you I mean, you see the boulder way before it actually pays off. Before that can actually happen, though, during some... Um, exploring in the woods rather uh steve comes across uh, our character gary Busey portrays savage he you know he comes back around he basically sees him because he says hey that's my car and Busey is lodged up in this abandoned school bus in the middle of the woods i'm not sure who he's supposed to represent in this film is it like the unobtainable voters what what is this i i think that's part of it but he's also he's also just uh, this gruntled unfairly treated vets I mean, he's clearly suffering from PTSD. He still believes he's in the war. And he has, he comes from a family of veterans and he lives in this shithole, you know, and nobody cares. No, nobody pays attention to him until the very end of the movie when he does some really dangerous stuff that nobody should ever do <laughs> at a political rally. But that is kind of, a, that that guy ends up being a badass and helping save the day when originally he's perceived that this crazy person that's a threat, I think that has... That teaches us all something. He is who um, Bernie Sanders is fighting for now, the the veterans that we just cast aside. Right, but this is the 90s, so Bernie 20 Sanders... 20 years ago. Yeah. Bernie Sanders was only like 70 back then. <laughs> he was not ready for to fight the good fight. The world, I mean, we're like maybe 20 minutes in the movie, 25 minutes in the movie, and it dawned on me that this was Chris Farley... You know, he's there's another way of putting it. He's a man-child in this, in this movie, and you know how I feel about those. But... There is just this key difference between movies back then and movies now, whereas this back when a man-child movie was about something other than, oh, well, he just has to grow up. You know, this is yeah. a movie that's complex. It, it talks about politics and America and veterans and all the – and, you know, at the center of it, yeah, you have Chris Farley breaking stuff and being clumsy and being loud and – acting like a kid but that was back then now if you remade that movie it would be seth rogan and jonah hill and it would just be about them like farting in that cabin <laughs> well also and the thing to keep in mind too is that it reinstills the sense of family that no matter what happens his big brother al is like still proud of him and defends his brother yeah pretty much i mean it, there's there's nothing that chris farley does in this movie that ever makes his brother completely give up on him mm-hmm and that is that is heartwarming. We get a game of checkers back in the cabin when the big rock comes into play as a, a bird poops on it, and that's the final straw. After all the things that have uh, hindered it, it rolls downhill, crashes into the cabin, and almost turns the cabin into like a vertical tilt where uh, they're just kind of in a, a different slant, and it, it just aids in, you know, 
you didn't think we needed any more comedy at this point, but it just adds a whole other level. As smart as the dialogue is, as, as, as good as they are with the one-liners and just the back and forths and whatever, uh, ultimately, I think Chris Farley is a physical comedy guy. So put him in a cabin that's tilted and just the possibilities are endless. You can't not win. Exactly. The possibilities are endless. And again, we all came to see the Chris Farley and David Spade show. So you are waiting for that one moment where Chris Farley is eventually going to fall on David Spade. The big guy has to fall on the little guy, and you're just waiting. I mean, we've been waiting for it ever since he called for the top bunk bed. Or after the boulder hits, it's that night, and the roof literally just comes off. It had been dislodged, and it blows off. And yeah, of course, we want the fat guy to fall on the small guy. And when they get into the cabin, there's the immortal exchange of Chris Farley saying, I call dibs on top. And David Spade says, okay. So he's on the top bunk, and you know, as the roof comes off, then it begins sleeting. Or um, hailing, excuse hailing, me. Hailing, yeah. Which I didn't, it looked like it was late summer, early fall, so that was very unseasonable. But uh, Spade begins mocking him, and then, of course, just at the perfect time, the top bunk collapses onto the bottom bunk. Yeah, it's a, it was a, it was a pressure cooker of when that, when that joke was going to pay off, and of course, once it did, it was, it was blissful. The next morning, Mike has a cell phone that they've just been struggling to get a signal with the entire time. He just wants to talk to his brother, Al. He gets a hold of Roger, Al's campaign manager, who's just a total dick, and tells him to like basically fuck off and leave his brother alone. It's Which, one of the heart-wrenching scenes of the film. Yeah, but it's good. I mean, they had to put that there because, honestly, if they had, if everybody on, on his brother's camp was, was just good, as good as his brother, then... That would be too much. It wouldn't properly uh, reflect politics. Exactly. I can only stretch my believability for so long. Mm-hmm. You know, I need. I. We all know most politicians are crooks. So of course, this guy. You know, somebody would be nasty, and that guy is nasty. Mike remembers that rock the vote is upon us, and he basically takes it upon himself to jack the car while Steve is sleeping and drive up to I think it was Seattle where they were holding it, and basically we get the third or so series of just miscommunications and just hijinks like it's almost like a bunch of individual montages but in this case he disguises himself as a security guard and then accidentally winds up in the locker room of what looks to be a rasta band smoking marijuana now julio i know you were not from america initially do you recall rock the vote are you familiar with I, Rock the I Vote? I do not recall Rock the Vote, but I do remember, even like not living in the States, I remember just... Do you recall Vote or Die, the Diddy campaign? I do not. Okay. I'll tell you what I remember. I just remember knowing, even from far away, that MTV was a force of good when it came to American politics. And and that's something that this movie reminded me of. I mean, MTV has gotten lazy, and now they really they're not as political. At that demanded. point in time, they were a big driving force. Yeah, and you see them, you know, organizing this this concert that basically is it's to give the Chris Farley's brother a place to speak. That's uh, something that the MTV of today wouldn't do anymore. Mm-hmm. No, very disappointing. It's also worth pointing out that uh, Farley is on his own on this one. He left David Spade behind mm-hmm. in a moment that actually humanizes Spade, I think, because he's he's kind of passed out, and Farley tries to wake him up, and then it turns out that Spade had a Playboy under. That's right. And, you know, and I, I thought it was like, yes, it's this guy's a cheap Playboy joke, but really, this is the first time that you actually see past David Spade's snarky exterior you know you think that he's maybe a lonely he, guy he's a lonely guy and you know he's just like everybody else every single person watching this movie masturbates so <laughs> he's just like you guys 
you can relate to him. It wasn't up until this point in the film that you could really relate to him. And and you know, it was like it's it's a deft touch that you need for this type of comedy because really all it takes is just you take it one millimeter too far and now it's just like you're alienating people. You mm-hmm. know, because I, I was afraid. I was like, is this the misstep? When 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 Farley starts like going through the Playboy, I swear I thought because there's bad things that happen in nineties. Nineties was not all great comedies. Mm-hmm. A bad comedy from nineties would have had like the pages sticking together, but no, they knew where to where to stop with this joke. So good for them. He is without Steve Dodd though, so it's only fitting that this becomes the most cataclysmic disaster of the film thus far. As I said, he was with the Rasta band that had a big plate of chicken wings and a bunch of marijuana, and he ends up just getting baked out of his mind with him. Basically wanders onto the side of the stage as Mud Honey's playing. Mud Honey, as I told you, was Basically, the band that a lot of people thought Nirvana should have been. And they come off stage, and he's just kind of going crazy, saying, I love you guys. And they're like, what's your name? Just trying to be good you know, good fan supporters. And uh, he says, Mike Donnelly. And they're like, oh, they mistake him for the governor, which, you know. I, I think that happened a lot during those MTV rallies. You know, they were trying to educate the masses, which they need to be educated because they're uneducated. So they would think any guy with the same last name as the – as a candidate, was the candidate. That completely bought that. And they are kind of taken aback by his clothing because he's just wearing like a zip-up hoodie and jeans. And they're like, oh, nice threads. You got to love 90s vernacular at this point. You know, it's almost like classical film that we're watching and observing here. And the vernacular really adds to it. Well, yeah, everything about that whole concert sequence. Because the fact that he walks into the room full of black guys, you know, and there's this, like, constant, like, close-ups between, like, you know, their faces and his face and contrasting the black and white. I mean, this is the 90s, uh, which is, you know, a time before – I've mentioned before in other reviews, you know, before the racial harmony that we have now. So back then, that was controversial. And the fact that they, you know, had him, like, partying together and then he calls himself – whitey and well that is one of the things i accidentally kind of glossed over there the conversation they have is they basically enlighten him on their culture and how they're oppressed and held back by the white man yeah and he he just suddenly has this 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 weight of white guilt on his shoulders that that plays on what happens later in the scene so it's 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 awesome that this is like uh, what people are willing to dismiss as a dumb comedy but it's really tackling the issues of that decade so he gets on stage at the forceful hand of Mud Honey, and he's baked out of his mind and basically just rambling and ranting and raving. But the crowd's just buying into it, just showing you know the the hope of the '90s, like the the mid to late '90s, the hope that existed leading into the new millennium. Yeah, it's another masterful Chris Farley set piece, you know, comedy set piece when he's up there on stage. But it was also, I think, that was like my biggest insight into this movie and how it speaks to all of us because. It really, it's just, it doesn't really matter what he's saying. He starts just rambling on and borrowing from like different, he's quoting different speeches and songs and whatever, and nobody cares. They're just, they just care that he's being really passionate about it. Mm-hmm. Yes, he's supposed to be the black sheep in this movie, but really when you think about it, that audience, they're the sheep. America, we are all sheep. We're just like listening to whoever screams the louder, whoever f- seems to be the most passionate. And in this case, they're lucky that, you know, the guy up there with the microphone is a good guy. Yeah. Kind of a simpleton, but he has a good heart. He's not being really passionate and telling him to eat babies or something. So, but that is that is something that can happen in politics. And that scene really encapsulates that. Al Donnelly, the actual governor, is watching this in terror as they put his name on the bottom of the screen while Mike is just ranting and raving. It builds to this giant crescendo when Mike looks over to his newfound brother's 
and they're cheering him on and he just screams kill whitey and we go into pure silence so it shows like you're saying the sheep will buy anything until you try to take their guns away pretty much exactly that is i couldn't have said it better alex i'm so proud of you i i, I really i am yeah i have no words <laughs> The next day, we're back at the cabin, and there's the big debate between Al Donnelly and Governor Tracy. Uh, Steve and Mike both want to watch it badly, so Mike informs that he knows where a TV is, and it turns out to be the abandoned bus that uh, Drake Savage, Gary Busey, lives in. And, you know, you can kind of tell where this is going. Yeah, much like like the thing with the bunk beds, There's it's, it's just little... Little time bombs of comedy that you just kind of hear and tick. You hear them tick throughout the movie, and you just every time that they explode, it's a huge payoff for for the audience. So of course, now you're like, here we are. We're set up for the return of Gary Busey, and we get it as David Spade leaves the uh, school bus. Mike watches on as his brother Al dominates the debate as Steve steps outside to take a squeege, as he said. I've borrowed that phrase for two decades now. And uh, as he's urinating in the woods, Busey sneaks up behind him and has what is an automatic weapon, just pulls it on him and says, what are you doing in my quadrant? And again, the PTSD comes into play. This man is not well. This man is disturbed and his country has failed him. Clearly. He's been wandering the streets and nobody ever stopped to check on him and be like, hey man, are you okay? This is the first time that he actually has any sort of like meaningful interaction that, that has good consequences for him eventually. And he shoots up the car that he stole from David Spade, but then uh, Chris Farley, Mike, comes out and tackles him, and they get into a scuffle, and he earns the respect of Drake Savage, Gary Busey, and they kind of have like a moment of endearing friendship, and then they talk about uh, Bruce Lee movies, to yeah. which um, Busey replies that he owns them all on Laserdisc. Yes. What a time to be alive. Oh, the 90s. <laughs> yeah, I think that as disturbed as he might be in the movie, Busey's character also, he's been through a lot. Obviously, and I think that he sees things with different eyes. He sees Chris Farley, and he can look through the exterior and the, the apparent clumsiness and, and and whatever, and actually see into his heart. And that's a good heart. So of course they bond, and he just completely forgives David Spade's misgivings earlier in the movie. It's the night before the election in Seattle, where Governor Tracy is having her pre-election party. Um, basically, this was just a big set leading into her getting the incriminating photos of um, Mike making it look like he started that fire at the rec center. Yeah, those photos that were taken like 10 minutes into the movie, probably like 50 minutes into you know the movie, 50 minutes ago, now that you're watching the movie, it's, uh, yeah, they come back. They finally come back. You're wondering why <laughs> those photographers hadn't come public with them yet. It's because they were waiting until it was almost election day to sell those pictures to whoever was losing. And uh, so they go to, uh, to the bad guys. And then Bruce McGill has, like, they give him this awesome close-up. I don't know if you noticed, where, like, he's smiling as in, like, oh, this is awesome. And then the the photographers say something like, so we figure we'd sell it to whoever's losing. And then his face just drops. And I was like, <laughs> that's Bruce McGill. That's just him, like, classing up this movie with, with just pretty awesome acting. It works in their favor, though, as it's announced that Governor Tracy wins the election. Mike is obviously devastated by this. He says, I cost my brother the election. He may be the black sheep, but he's not a simpleton. He pays close attention to when the election results are announced, and he can tell uh, by each county how many registered voters there are, and he knows that the numbers don't add up. He, he's on the trail here. You know, what would have been just a moment of crushing defeat for some, he remains hopeful, and, you know, this leads to a big discovery. 
yeah, he he basically catches the thing that every other person should have caught, and somehow, I, I mean, the, the bad guys they're really not they're really not that smart as far as this is again a commentary on how just America doesn't pay attention. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's because sadly it's a very easy scam. They're just creating votes out of thin air. They're they're creating votes from like dead people and whatever. So what happens is when you add up the two totals from the two opposing parties, you come up with more votes than than registered voters. So that then you know the population. So let's say the population of the town is like a thousand people and there was like fifteen hundred votes. Yeah. So that is like basic math. You should be able to catch that. <laughs> every single person in America should be able to like know that. But also, every single person in America doesn't care. They don't know the population of their of their town. They you know they don't know. They're not as dedicated as Mike Donnelly. They don't care. They're just like, oh, who Fox Fox says that they want. Okay, Fox says that they want. They want. Yeah. You know that's all that better. And so it really takes somebody that's actually passionate about this seriously. Who's not a sheep. Exactly. You know, you when you're the black sheep, you're no longer a sheep. He figures it out and he tells David Spade and now we're off into the, the third act to save the day. Officer Robbie, Mike's friend, comes back into play as he lends his police car to Mike and Steve because it's the only means of transportation they have because after they consult the public records, of course their car is dead. Of course they can't use it. Well, yeah, it is a comedy. Because, yeah, there's got to be that one last obstacle in the way. So Robbie tells him if you get pulled over, I'm going to tell him that it was stolen. It's 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 interesting that that's where he draws a line though because he could have driven them mm-hmm. and in a way if if he had driven them he probably would have robbed us from another memorable comedic set piece but be, because there's only so much he's he's still a cop he likes his job and yeah. he knows that if he gets caught with these guys doing what they're gonna do then he'll lose his job and then he won't be able to do any more good so overall this is again this is a good character he does good things for them and he also he's not he's not reckless. So early in the movie, Robbie, you know, he admits to Mike in some confidence that he souped up his police cruiser with nitrous oxide. You're kind of curious, like, why would he explain this? This is early in the movie. You, you got to wonder if this is going to pay off later. Well, sure enough, as Mike and Steve are driving the car, they run over some loose gravel, uh, a bit of a road being worked on, and it knocks one of the plugs and the nitrous loose. So basically the, the gas begins leaking into the car causing uh, the two men in the vehicle to uh, become inebriated by the fumes. Yeah, so basically this is just uh, uh, on our way to the climatic confrontation with the bad guys. This is this the final like big set piece where you have Chris Farley and David Spade high out of their minds driving down the highway and just just being funny. Yeah, just you know saying words, pronouncing them. I mean, yeah, there's this... been so many stoner comedies yep. that like you can't drag that out for an entire movie, but if you just cram it into one four-minute scene of like stoner comedy, it's gold every time. Yeah, and it's it's really again you have to mind your audience, and this is what people paid for. This is why they bought the ticket to see mm-hmm. these two guys together being funny together. So yes, there's good stuff about politics and America and cops, but but really this is you have to give them what they want. So even though it's kind of an easy joke, it's a pleasure to watch. You're going to order the Big Mac at the end of the day. They can spruce up the menu with all they want, but you're, you're going to want to go to the gold. Unfortunately, they get pulled over, though. The the nitrous oxide gas had fucked with their judgment too much, and uh, they're just cognitive abilities. They get pulled over. The officer that pulls them over informs them that they were going only seven miles an hour, 
which is just a brilliant comedic reveal. And he didn't pull over to the shoulder. He pulled over to the middle of the road. Yes. And, I mean, come on. We've all been there. So that's that's why it's so funny. So he tells them to just get going and, you know, maintain the speed limit. So they drive about 30 meters or so. When they turn around, there's just a cavalcade of cars coming at him. And he says, oh, shit. And they gun. Uh, I think he says something like, I hope there's some juice left. And the, just the remainder of the nitrous oxide carries him to the scene of Governor Tracy's victory party. High-speed chase with the cops, and it's even reported on in the news, but by the time he gets there, there's not that many police officers that have been chasing him. So well, that car know, must have been going really fast. He left them behind. He just kicked, like, hyperdrive, warp nine, whatever you nerds call, like, super speed these days. But it was, it's, uh, yeah, they, they, get, they get there really fast. And Drake Savage was there. Gary Busey was already waiting for him. Yeah, that's uh, that's all part of their plan. Yeah. Uh, he's there as, as the backup, a uh, much-needed backup, as it turns out. So they don't really have much of a plan. They're trying to like basically ad-lib on the spot when Mike is pulled up by one of the TV trucks, the antenna that begins rising, basically pulls him up. He falls off the top of it, and he's forced to ad-lib on the spot. He just grabs uh, one of the cop's guns and puts it to Steve's head. Yes, extremely dangerous. Don't try it at home. But these were extreme circumstances. So, of course, what De- else was he going to do? Desperate times call for desperate measures. Right. He is a wanted man at this point. And, and as history has proven, if you, if you know that, that something went wrong with an election, you need to let them know right away because otherwise it just – It won't be corrected. Yes, exactly. Once it gets into the heads of the American public that a certain person is the winner, then that's, it's so much harder to just overturn that no matter the proof that you have. So – it really – they needed to do something right then. So he does take him hostage. He gets up on the podium and begins you know, spouting off all the facts about the election. Um, Savage notices that a sniper is about to take him out, and then he distracts him, I believe, with a pocket mirror. Well, first, he takes his leg off. Oh, which... the big reveal that, yes, his leg was t- removed in battle. Yeah, he takes the leg off, and then he has some sort of goodies inside the hollow leg, and uh, one of them is a mirror, which is like, look at this guy. He's carrying guns. He could have just gunned the sniper away, but he chose a peaceful way of, of neutralizing the threat, mm-hmm. which I think tells you a lot about his character. Well, this goes back into the whole political structure of this four-part arc. You know, not all gun owners are bad people. Exactly. Some of them would rather use a mirror than discharge when they don't really know what could happen when they when they should. Exactly. So it knocks him off balance, takes stage as Mike is explaining how Drake Savage's father and grandfather voted for uh, Governor Tracy. And she's, oh, yeah, we're proud to have their votes. and But it turns out they've been dead for years and years and years. So it's all crumbling in front of her. Bruce McGill basically gives it all away, too. Yep, he's uh, he's drunk and just you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. She put us up to it. It's uh, it's awesome. I'm so glad they gave him that moment. Uh, he's he's not in the movie much, but he is enough. That, you know, he he's just there to make it count every time mm-hmm. he comes in. And I like he just basically yeah, he puts the final nail in the coffin. So it's all announced, and you know, she's immediately taken out of office, impeached. I'm not sure. We don't go through the whole process. All we know is it's that Chris Farley falls on top of her. That's right. Which might be punishment enough. We don't really know the legal process of what happens. It doesn't look like Mike does any jail time for like stealing a police car and holding someone hostage, stealing an officer's gun. We don't know. 
We really don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's a long fade, and like there could have been a lot of time that elapsed during that time. But we yeah, know. we we just know the important beats at that point, which is like the information got out, the, the important relevant. She's information, out. She's out. Al's in. Yes, and, and the brothers and, still love each other. Yeah, which ultimately that's that's all that matters. I mean, there is. I think a, a lesser movie would probably overdo it and try to like close every loop and mm-hmm. tie every loose end, and uh, and then kind of like lose the power of that ending. But here they just they just cut to the epilogue real fast. There's a lot of inner workings of politics that people don't want to know about. They just want the end result. They want a happy ending. Yeah, and and I think that that's that's why, especially younger generations, you know, younger voters. That's why they disengage because sometimes, in an effort to engage them, we just overload them with information. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you just have to start small. Just get them to care about Chris Farley before they care about the system. Mm-hmm. You know, I think this movie was stepped in the right direction. It's kind of a shame that they just were not able to continue. Yeah, overall, it's really funny. It has a lot to it. There's a lot of complexity behind the the comedic hijinks, and there's also just the the, the sadness. Uh, I mean, you know, like I said, there's the sadness of the '90s mm-hmm. that left us, and that, but there's also not sadness. There's the hope of the '90s that left it, us. That is true, and who might return someday. You know, we may not go back to a time without cell phones, but we might go back to a time where there was more optimism. Yes, and more people willing to do the right thing in politics. It's the American tale, too, because there's a lot of political overtones and undertones in this film. But the foundation of this film is the foundation of America, and that's family. And you know what else gives you hope? That, you know, it's it's been 20 years and people are still watching this movie. And mm-hmm. I think that maybe they don't realize why they like it so much. They think it's just Chris Farley and David Spade falling on each other. I think that subconsciously they're absorbing that other message, which is we really need to do something about politics. Mm-hmm. We need to start small and eventually care about it as much as, as Chris Farley. So it's, yeah, overall pretty inspiring and a good a good rebound, I think, for us uh, after the American president. I think that now now I just want to go out and vote. Agreed. This time next year, I'll definitely be watching this film again to get me inspired to go out get there and vote. Get so pumped up. Yeah. And just go and vote for, for a mayor can... that might not be your brother physically, you know, through bloodlines, but he will be your bo- your brother in spirit. If I can only have as much passion to vote as Mike Donnelly does, if I can only have half that, I will be a good citizen. In America, will be a good country. This is some real talk. <laughs> Let's do real talk. Um, not supposed to be here. Ah. God, what is this? I, uh, I guess I could sure use some cupcakes or some peanut butter cups about now. Yeah, you know what that's about? Yeah. So I guess you guys should vote, you know, because uh, voting kicks ass, right? Yeah! And um, let me tell you, if you're going to vote, why not vote for Al Donnelly, right? Because if voting kicks ass... What in the hell... Oh, please, God, I'm dreaming. I'm dreaming. You got some kick-ass shit! Oh, God, I'm a dead man. I'm uh, I'm hyperventilating. 
So, Black Sheep, starring Chris Farley and David Spade, was released on February 2nd, 1996. Directed by Penelope Spheres of Wayne's World fame. At a box office of $32.4 million, I could not find what the budget was. And stands at a meager 28% on Rotten Tomatoes. If I remember correctly, that is the same standing as Empire Records. Would you say this is... Uh... Empire Records is better than this. <laughs> It wouldn't even let me finish. <laughs> uh, oh, boy. Uh, okay, let's start with the people that actually like the movie. I got Kevin Carr from 7M Pictures, who says, May not be remembered as a masterful comedy classic, but for the college humor crowd with a relatively safe PG-13 rating, it's a fun diversion. Then Richard Leiby from the Washington Post says... There's certainly no Aykroyd and Belushi or even Myers and Carvey, but Fairley and Spade managed to wring humor from a series of juvenile setups and predictable pratfalls. Phil Villarreal from Arizona Daily Star says, A transcendent comedy starring one of the top but most tragically fated comedy teams of all time. I don't understand. They've made fucking two movies. Two movies. Yeah, but, you know, that's like that's all they needed, apparently. Yeah, like, people talk about them like there's some, you know, Lewis and Martin type thing. Well, somebody, that Richard Leiby guy, said no Aykroyd and Belushi. How many Aykroyd Belushi movies are there other than Blues Brothers? Uh, now I have to look it up. I guess that's just... What it is is just the SNL pairing, like, comparison. Yeah, I mean, I never saw him in SNL, but uh, I guess that maybe they work together a lot. I don't know. Kind of. It's not like one of those things. It's, not, it's like I'm saying. It's not like Lewis and Martin. It's not like insert Judd Apatow crew member name here. It's not like anything like that. It's just, not the Franco and Hill or Franco yeah, and Rogan. Or, I don't know. Yeah. Continue. Um, oh, well, this last one, it's actually it's it's funny for a different reason. Cam Williams from DallasBlack.com says... Though not always in good taste, this tongue-in-cheek parody of the horror genre is sophisticated and clever enough to earn the appreciation of the egghead cult crowd. <laughs> what? I, I think it's just a link to the wrong <laughs> review. That's fantastic. I it's, love it, when I come across it, those. Those always make me laugh so hard. Uh, yeah, but uh, there's like a, a couple more positive reviews. But overall, even those are pretty like, you know, they're they're not... They're not that enthusiastic. They're all like, it's no Tommy Boy, but it's okay. They're okay, really... so two things. One, before we start getting into this, I have like a gigantic sentimental attachment to this film that I explained so to you're, So you're asking me to be gentle. No, 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 no. I, I don't care. Like, I just, it's, 
I have a very good sentimental attachment to this movie from my childhood. I don't really care to go into it, and like just because <laughs> there may be people that don't know me that listen to this that I don't really feel like sharing my personal life with. But uh, to Tommy Boy is much better. Tommy Boy is not fucking a great movie. Like to act like that's like you know some great achievement in film is ridiculous. Yes, it's much better than this, and there's more hearty laughs. But this is still like I don't know. I think this is funny. I I respectfully disagree, <laughs> sir. <laughs> But here's where I don't have any sort of attachment to anything in this movie. I, you know, I I am not part of uh, the the Chris Farley David Spade generation that you know saw them on on uh, SNL and then saw them in Tommy Boy and you know I this is the first Chris Farley movie I've seen. I've seen trailers for all his other movies, and the reason I didn't watch them was because I thought the trailers looked pretty terrible. And like I told you before we started here, in a way, I mean, that's – it's not like I shouldn't be that disappointed by the movie in the sense that it did exactly what I expected to do. And I think that if you're a fan of Chris Farley and David Spade, then you'll have a good time. But my problem is that I'm not a fan of Chris Farley's type of humor where he's just like – I could be wrong. Maybe he plays a different type in like Beverly Hills Ninja or almost. No, it, it's all the same, and it's kind of unfortunate that he. I think he was really comedically talented. I think it's just right away he was typecast and like. Um, right, they cast him because they want the sloppy, really loud, you know, clumsy guy. It's you don't watch Simpsons, so I can't say it's the I didn't do it thing, but like that's. He basically, like, I'm sure they tried a bunch of different things with him, and then he did. I think probably the big breakthrough thing was the Chippendale skit with him and Patrick Swayze where he, you know, took his shirt off and did all that, and then people were just like, okay, more of that, like, Pratt Fall-style comedy. Are, are you familiar with, like, his SNL work much? Uh, I've seen a, a couple of his SNL mo uh, skits, and, and again, like, with the ones where I've enjoyed him. And I'm not saying that he's not funny. I mean, he, he made me laugh in this movie a couple times. Mm -hmm. Uh It's just that brand of comedy, but in, this in one, this movie especially, turns it up to like twenty. Like it's <laughs> like okay, it's like do the thing you do, just a lot more animated. Yeah, uh, in SNL, I remember the the most I enjoyed him was like the rare skits where he was actually he was like a background character and mm -hmm. he was just very subtle and like just making faces in the background. Have you ever seen the Coffee Crystal skit that he was in? No. Okay, well, we're going to watch that when we're done recording because <laughs> it's amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure I understand because that's just a kind of humor that works on some people. It just doesn't work on me. So when you sit me in front of a movie that's just got to be mostly about that, then it's already a losing proposition. You know? Okay, uh, so this movie was Paramount and their desperate attempt to basically – rectify the mistake they made with Tommy Boy because they didn't think Tommy Boy was going to do any business. Like people watched it and they were like, all right, fuck this. So they barely advertised it and it did really well. And obviously to this day, like much more than black sheep, Tommy Boy is regarded as like a classic. And so they threw this movie together haphazardly and released it. Like the script was written really quickly And they were basically just trying to strike while the iron was hot with the David Spade, Chris Farley combo. And, you know, 
I think both of them, Farley and Spade, try the best they can with what they're given, but it's just like... Well, yeah, I, I mean, that's that's clear from the beginning. It's like you could put the two most talented comedians ever in, in given that script. You, and th- yeah, it's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll give you my – I'll tell you my Tommy Boy slash Black Sheep story, which is that I saw – I became aware of Tommy Boy because it won or at least was nominated for some MTV Movie Awards. So Classic. I was like, oh, look, there's just like – I don't know. It, I was like, oh, it's the big guy and the little guy. And, okay, I guess it's a comedy. Mm-hmm. And then I guess months later, I was reading comics. This is before I even lived here. But I was reading comics and there was like advertising, like full-page ads. Oh, God, for, I miss for... I miss full-page ads <laughs> yeah. for movies. Full-page ads and glossy paper for Black Sheep. And I'm like, wait a second. This, isn't this called Tommy Boy? <laughs> because, you know, at the time, I'm just like completely not familiar with – with you know, for some reason, my first thought was that they had renamed the movie that I or that that it was an old ad that used to be called Black Sheep, but then when they actually released it, it was Tommy Boy, and then it it you know became popular and won the awards. Uh, I don't know why I didn't think oh it's just another movie with the same two guys, mm-hmm. um, but you know at the time I didn't know anything about SNL. I didn't know anything. This about... was a time before Judd Apatow. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I was like, no, what? Why would they do that again? What the would same they... people. Yeah, and it's like they're playing the same roles because even from the poster, you can tell that you know Farley's going to be the loud one because he's all wrapped up in the flag. <laughs> and Spades, the like no nonsense. Spades just like looking straight at the camera. He's like the Jim Halpert of you know the nineties. God, that just makes me really miss old comic book ads. My favorites were. Uh... Full page ads for like Game Boy games, where it'd be like live action posters for things that would make Game Boy games look so much more epic than they right. were. And then you play the game, and it's like black and white, yeah, and like blocky. Yeah. But it was fucking amazing at the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, and then they brought back Penelope Sephiris. I apologize, I don't know how to pronounce her name. Of uh, as I said, Wayne's World fame. She also did the Little Rascals movie. And the oh, I, I looked up her filmography. I was she because, made a lot of movies. Yeah, she made a lot of movies, which is why I, I didn't bring it up because I was going to make some sort of like cheap joke earlier about like you know she made this movie. She came in, made this movie, and dropped the mic, and then I looked up her filmography. It's like no, she's been making movies forever. Well, <laughs> and then yeah. she made a few more after this one. So. so basically, the game plan for this film was okay. Our most successful SNL movie so far was Wayne's World, and then so. We'll bring her in with, you know, this duo that did, like, much better than anyone expected. So this movie will just fucking make a killing so it doesn't matter what the script is. That Which that mentality is always good going into a film because <laughs> the script is the last thing you need to worry about. But, um, yeah, because the first Wayne's World did make a killing. And the second one was a far lesser return, which is unfortunate because complete sidebar, I was as, a, as I was telling you earlier... I think Wayne's World 2 legitimately is one of the funniest films I've ever seen and one of the best comedies ever. Um, And I hold that in a completely different stratosphere than all these uh, other SNL movies. But anyway, um, it was just a classic case of film studio hubris getting the best of them. And, you know, yeah, like I, I do think that Farley especially gave it a genuine effort, but it was just, it was so much of, he he's the fat stupid guy look at him type yes, stuff and that's actually that's what I was like waiting to ask you after you know remember I, we were about to watch it and I was like hey do you think and then I stopped because <laughs> I was like I'm going to save this for the podcast because I think it's it's worth addressing how would you compare Chris Farley's comedy and granted I've only seen Black Sheep with uh, one of our uh, god I feel bad saying this because I know she's better than this but Melissa McCarthy 
you know, every time that we see a movie where she's just like the big joke is like, oh, well, you know, she's big and she's clumsy and whatever, you know, because you certainly love Farley and that type of comedy, you know, you can appreciate that. So why wouldn't you appreciate it? From Melissa McCarthy, you sexist pig. Yeah, I was about to say, you trying to like paint me in a sexist light? Uh, I don't know. Uh, like ignorance is bliss. Also, like all my memories related to Chris Farley's comedy was like before I could comprehend thoughts like that. Now is where I watch Melissa McCarthy, and I'm like, I think she has some talent to be given. The fact that she was nominated for a goddamn Oscar for Bridesmaids is fucking ridiculous. But um, have you ever have you ever seen her in Gilmore Girls? No. See, that's what people used to ask, used to ask me, and then I watch a few episodes of Gilmore Girls, and I was like, I get it now. That fucking says like that, that sounds like something I would say, <laughs> like <laughs> an excuse to fall back on. About no, 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 no. It's it's true. She's she's because she's not playing Gilmore Girls. Her character is just like it's just funny because the character is funny, not because she's just like constantly. I mean, she's clumsy in Gilmore yeah. Girls, but she's not. Like the movies that you know you see her doing now most of the time. It, it's, it's just such a different time too, where we like hyper analyze shit like that. Like back then, it was just like, okay, it's funny. It, yeah, you can point at it now and say, oh, they were just doing that. But now it's like everything's hyper analyzed. And you know, if Chris Farley came along, you know, five years ago as opposed to twenty years ago, he wouldn't have been regarded as some like really funny comedian that people beloved. They would just be like. It, compare him to like Dane Cook and shit like that. It's just like a much more cynical time to observe things like that. And that's coming from someone like myself with the cynical outlook on Melissa McCarthy where I'm like, her whole style of comedy is she's fat, get it? Like, But see, I think that much like, uh, kind of like what we're saying with the studio, you know, pigeonholing Farley into like, hey, you did this and this was funny, so let's just keep doing it forever. Mm-hmm. I think that that's kind of like what the movies are doing to her because every now and then I... I Again, because of what I said, that that's not my random comedy. I just don't find her funny even, you know, when she's in a good movie that makes her do those kind of things. Yeah. But but I've seen her be really good with dialogue and really good at just, like, I was literally about to say to that with Farley. There's things that I've seen him do where, like, like I was saying, Wayne's World 2, he has this bit role in it that has no real, like, impact on the story of the film or anything like that. And he's not at all like the look at me type thing. He just has these lines and the way he delivers them is so good. And also like Beverly Hills Ninja, which is not what I would consider a classic achievement in film, Uh, which relies so heavily on like look at me type stuff. But there's these parts where he just dialogue based is hilarious. So I think obviously he was a very mixed up person to begin with that's the way his life the reason the way his life ended up the way it was was because he was a mixed up dude but i think he was talented it's just you know when you do that first parlor trick and that's all people want to see from you you can't really get out of that and it's unfortunate and like that's kind of what's with melissa mccarthy to a certain extent um you know, and Kevin James, too, was a lot of the same. I, I don't think Kevin James is as talented as Farley or McCarthy is. But. I think you're forgetting about Here Comes the Boom and your reaction Here Comes the to- Boom was lightning in a bottle. <laughs> I think Kevin James benefits from having had a long-running TV show that... And King and Queens was good. Yeah, it doesn't mean like a show that allowed him to show that he was more than just like, oh, here's a big guy falling, you know? Well, to be fair, anything with Jerry Stiller on it will be successful, so... <laughs> Very, 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 very 90s movie. Uh, the MTV inclusion, the Mud Honey inclusion, which I really love Mud Honey, but like at 96, in 96, it was like 
You guys couldn't get any other band, like <laughs> Red Hot Chili Peppers or something like that. Uh, you did say you did laugh at some points in this movie. Was it the Rock the Vote speech that was made you laugh? Kill, uh, Kill Whitey is like... Well, Kill Whitey is a great punchline. And uh, I mean, the Rock the Vote speech was okay. Maybe if I hadn't had like 30 or 40 minutes of Chris Farley already being like really loud and over the top, it would have landed a lot better. Uh, no, the the really truly funny moment in the movie is the reveal that they were driving at seven miles per hour <laughs> that was that's really good and then they pull back and you see that they didn't pull over they pulled like in the middle of the lane so that's that was good that made me laugh and then a that couple... was probably the only scene in the movie that like any effort went into writing well yeah they were like this is is this too good guys <laughs> uh they uh, i i laughed a little bit at their bruce mcgill like his his facial expressions made me laugh i i thought that he was funny and and i mean there is i'm i don't i think david spade makes bad movies but he he's a good performer i like him as a performer i he's made one really good movie which is joe dirt god dude come on dude, joe dirt is fucking awesome i mean i'm talking like i watched it but it's one of the things like i've seen the trailer i don't need to see anything else you've never seen joe dirt no why would i okay Oh, dude, Christopher Walken and Joe Dirt is top notch. Uh, well, Kid I mean, Rock, top notch. Uh, yeah, but it's mostly. I mean, that's they're probably they're in it for like five minutes. And... It's like an anal uh, an, an anthology tale that it goes through. <laughs> dude, okay, Joe Dirt. It goes into that category. It's ninety minutes. It's not long enough to be offensive. Well, I'm not afraid of it being offensive. I'm just afraid of it not being funny. It's hilarious. By what standard, though? By the by the black sheep standard? <laughs> Dude, no, 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 no. It's it's an actually genuinely funny movie. Uh, Alex Payne, like our friend and potential <laughs> listener, I remember him one time backing me up on it being really, really funny, and I like wasn't expecting that from him. But it's fucking fantastic. And yes, we were talking about Alexander Payne, the creator of Sideways, <laughs> yes, the director <laughs> that might be listening to this. Uh, I don't know. You're distracting me from my main point, which is. David Spade is funny. He can, can be, be. Fu- yeah, he can be funny. Just like I mean, I guess Chris Farley can be funny and whatever. You know, it's like they're they're in a in a bad movie, but they can still they have moments where it's just their charisma shines through, no matter how bad the writing can be. It's so, interesting too because Spade almost got pigeonholed into that mm, smarmy like sarcastic role, right? But you know, I mean, if Chris Farley was still alive, maybe he would have been able to break out of it. You never know. I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah. I haven't seen many David Spade movies, but I remember liking him. Just shoot me. Uh, which again was like a TV show that probably allowed you know allowed him to try different things. Uh, yeah, and that's Joe Dirt is I'd like because that's uh, I love that movie. I should say because uh, everything else they try to do where David Spade was at the helm was him being that like sarcastic smarmy character and like none of that ever worked. I can't even remember the child star movie Dickie something or other. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, um, In and Out. I'm trying to think of the other movies that In he, and Out, the was, Kevin Klein movie. Oh no! Then what was it called? There was some movie with him. Well, I mean, he, he was is, naked on the poster. That's well, all I remember. Let's not forget he is in a uh, Grown Ups One and Two. Yeah, <laughs> he dragged into that mud hole with a bunch of other talking about <laughs> movies that can be offensive. Both of those are at least a hundred minutes long. <laughs> I think uh, they're both two hours. Um, but I guess. Uh, just going back to like things I enjoyed in this movie. I mean, there there are not that many, but there were glimpses of like that reminded me. Oh, David Spade can be funny. Mm-hmm. Oh, like you know, 
Chris Farley clearly can be funny if he's not being pushed into like being this just loud uh, big guy. Uh, there are moments. I mean, the gag of like them head banging, you know, that when they're going down the road, and every time the the radio stops, then they stop head banging, and yeah. then like, that's you know that's cute. Uh, it would be a much worse movie if you had lesser performers or performers that had less of a connection than these two guys did. It's so weird to me though. This is your first time seeing it. Just be, I, like there is the age difference between us, but like I don't know. It was such like a fundamental part of my up. Uh, like growing up after this movie came out like at camp or if we like were staying over at a friend's house and they had bunk beds we would always do the i got dibs on top okay <laughs> so like this is like a woven into uh well that wouldn't have the worked. pop culture i was around we don't uh, we don't have bunk beds in peru so i wouldn't have gotten it it's just tarps on the ground <laughs> it's just tarps on the ground <laughs> i got dibs on the tarp okay <laughs> i guess they would have they would have changed it um yeah, and that's one of those things that you see with movies like this that have that weird backstory of like rush scripts and stuff. There'll there's still the moments where actual talent can shine through, where people can show like moments of promise and things like that. And um, yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I would wish that we could follow this up with Tommy Boy, but it is neither fresh political. nor <laughs> political. <laughs> right, so we yeah, couldn't... no, we might get to it later in our contrarian's career. Yeah. <laughs> It's, but it's one of those things that uh, uh, it's not a movie that made me angry. Mm-hmm. I don't know if maybe I would have been like a little more against it if it had a high rating. If this was like we're reviewing like a ninety percent movie and it turned out to be this, I'll be like, okay, what's going on? <laughs> but to me, I see a twenty eight percent, and I'm like, well, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's uh, Empire Records is a better movie. It, well, yeah, yeah, twenty eight percent for Empire Records doesn't make sense. Twenty eight percent for this movie makes sense, especially once you consider the. The history. I mean, if it has, if you factor in the backlash for it not being Tommy Boy, yeah, then it makes even more sense than that. Uh, Gary Busey. We haven't talked about that yet. Yes. Uh, well, what is there to say about Gary Busey? It's so weird because there's not really a payoff to it. Uh, I mean, it's just here's Gary Busey. Here's. I mean, they kind of tried to tie him in at the end when it turns out that they they use his dead family as an example of voters that. Mm-hmm. You know, shouldn't have voted, but they did somehow. Uh, but you clearly could write him out of the movie, and it's still the same. And you know, you just kind of lose those those uh, those little set pieces with him there. But he is, uh, I don't know, Gary Busey is such a in a way. I mean, I think Christopher Walken obviously has like a, a more interesting career or whatever but there's that thing about how slightly <laughs> yeah well there's that thing how like christopher walken like they say that he will be like oh, i'll just do I-, I like to work so i'll just do whatever yeah you know and gary Busey will show up in like all sorts of movies as well and you're kind of thinking is that how he lives too like like sure i'll do it you know and uh, and they're like yeah and you're gonna play the crazy guy <laughs> and he does it he looks scary i think was he in a Oh, I could be thinking of a different crazy guy. Maybe making me think of Nick Nolte. But it's like I think he was like in the is he in the Entourage movie or maybe just on Entourage the show. But again, you know, he's he's just that a crazy would require guy. that I watched Entourage. Well, in maybe any maybe you should. I I watched. Uh, I almost said I watched Tommy Sheep. I watched Black Sheep for you, man. Maybe you need to watch some Entourage. No, I remember watching Entourage when it was on. I had a roommate in college that loved it, and I was like, this is not good. Oh, it's it's better than that. It's better than 
It's, it gets it's such bad. a realistic depiction of what it's like to be in the movie industry. I, I think that you could argue it is, not, but not in the way that they think it is. You know what I mean? Like, uh, Isn't there like a big story arc where the main character's out of work and then the way like it's settled is that Martin Scorsese just puts him in a movie? I didn't get that far in the show, but that's what I've heard. Uh, realistic <laughs> well there is I, I actually listened to I mean, we're so off topic by now but, <laughs> uh, I I listened to an interview with the, the guy that, that made the movie and the creator of the show and uh, and he was talking about Mark how, Wahlberg no 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 the, the other guy the, Mark Wahlberg is like the, the man like you know the, the, the puppet master I pay the bills okay <laughs> yes uh, but he no, this is the director and the guy that actually was like the showrunner and all this stuff. And he was talking about how like he thinks that it's actually a very uh, accurate depiction of a certain aspect of Hollywood. And he's not a hundred percent wrong. I mean, I don't, I'm not part of the business, so I really don't know for sure. But he made it sound like well, there is a sector, there is a section of of, of people in Hollywood that actually are kind of like this, that they just everything works out for them. You know what I mean? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, because he, he used Mark Wahlberg as an example. And he was, you know, Mark Wahlberg, his career is kind of like this. Mm. It takes his, and, and then Wahlberg wasn't a fucking Scorsese movie. He got nominated for an Oscar. Yeah, but he had some major ups and downs. Well, the I only mean, this thing. Is, this is a comedy, you know, Entourage is a comedy. So yeah, I, I was going to say the only like, thing comparable to the story arc of that main character is like Orlando Bloom up till Elizabethtown. <laughs> If that's where the movie ended, then that would be okay. Just at the premiere, not the aftermath of the film. I, yeah, I mean, I don't think that it's... Uh, it, why are we still talking about Entourage? I can't believe <laughs> I have more to say about it. But there's, I don't think that they try to make it like a documentary. I'm not even like... I, I, why am I defending it? I'm not even like a big fan. But It's uh, it's the whole HBO series thing. Like, Sex and the City is a great show, but it's not a realistic depiction of real life. Right, so. but it, I don't think it ever claimed to be. And, and That's true. Well, the thing with Entourage is I think that that guy actually says that... This is not that far off. I mean, yeah, it's not meant to reflect all of Hollywood, but there is a, a part of Hollywood that lives large, and even when they make mistakes, you know, they because they're so good and they're, they've made so many contacts and whatever that they they fly through. And I'm like, okay, I kind of buy it. I mean, I I don't think it's it was it's, successful. So my like hating on it's just like minuscule. So. Uh, how did we get? Oh, because Gary Busey might have been <laughs> in a couple of Gary Busey was an entourage. <laughs> the, the mystery of Gary Busey and how he ends up places. Why is he in? In God, I was gonna say Tommy Sheep again. Why was he Tommy Black Sheep? Sheep. Uh, yeah. Um, as far as he goes, I, my dad's always told me that um, I need to watch the Buddy Holly story and that he's like amazing in that. And that was like what certified him as like a legitimate actor in Hollywood. But then he had his accident, like his crash and it really fucked up his head oh is that what happened i i didn't know i yeah i can't think of like a, uh, a good gary Busey movie that i've seen where i'm just like that's a movie that i think of when i think of gary Busey performances every time i think of gary Busey, i think of that joke from scrubs where elliot looks like gary Busey. but that's just because that was really funny uh he had a, a reality show i think I am with Busey. Yeah, you know what's called? Okay, yeah. yeah. Was that was that real? Was that scripted? Was that? I don't remember. I know uh, what you're talking about, though. Yeah, which was, I think, my first glimpse into the madness that is Gary Busey. I didn't even watch the show; just watching the commercials, I'm like, "Is this for real? Is this is this really happening, or is it just like a mockery of a reality show?" And they and Gary Busey is just like playing along. Uh, yeah, I don't know. He's entertaining in this, though. Like, uh, uh, he's entertaining, but I mean, I don't know, man. I I wouldn't. I, He's as entertaining as the script allowed him to be. Yeah, but even then, uh, you know, I, 
I mentioned Nick Nolte earlier, and you know Nick Nolte in Tropic Thunder, he plays a similar character, kind of, you mm -hmm. know, hitting those same notes. But Nolte, obviously, Nolte is working with a much better script, but also, <laughs> I think he. Well, it's a different movie. You know, it's kind of unfair. But Nolte was going to say he's a little more subtle. Yeah, I was going to say that like, you're comparing Black Sheep to like one of the greatest comedies in the last 25 years. Yeah, but what I mean is that I Busey's performance here is just as over the top as the rest of the movie, and mm -hmm. so therefore I can't really, I, I don't really enjoy it that much. You know, he's he's just loud and and he's game for whatever they're asking him to do, but that's that's about it. Basically, at the end of the day, with Black Sheep, it's just one of those weird things. Like, if I was like yourself watching it for the first time today, uh, I'm not sure I would have the same feeling about it. But one, I have like the, the sentimental attachment to it. And two, it's these jokes that I have thought have been funny for 20 years. So they're still funny to me. Like that type of thing. I, I can totally see that. I, I know I'm attached to movies that are not that great anymore, but they were great when I first saw them. And, mm -hmm. and it's always. Uh, like I still think Kill Whitey is brilliant. Like that gets me every single time. It's a funny no. I told you I, I gave that to you. That's a funny moment. That that made me laugh. The bunk beds thing and the the I'm glad you pointed out the seven thing because that's like in the few instances where I've ever been in a friend's car or something when when, when they get pulled over, <laughs> I just go seven. <laughs> that's yeah. I yeah. I I, I kind of I felt bad while we're watching it because. I was like, man, I'm not laughing, and I know what it's like when you're like watching a movie with someone and they're not laughing. I was tempted to like just start staring at you until you <laughs> laughed. <laughs> I was like, oh, I hate being that guy, but I'm like, we got to be honest. This is that's this. No, but it's one of those things that made me aware, like as I was watching it, and like for the first time in my life ever, actually like dissecting it and just being like, <laughs> yeah, this is uh, not that good. No, but it's not top notch material here. <laughs> no. <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, well, you know, we had more to say about it than Rocky. So, so That's that. true. And we got a good entourage discussion in while we were at it. <laughs> yes. Uh, so that was episode 22. That was Black Sheep, or Tommy Sheep, as Julio likes to call it. Uh, next episode will be episode number 23. It'll be part three in our four-part political story arc. That kind of rhymed. Uh, Julio, what we'll be watching for the next episode? We'll be watching Dave. I don't know what the rating is, what the what the percentage is, but I know it's it's high. It's, yeah, it's, it's up there. It's up there. I haven't seen Dave. Have you seen Dave? I have not. Nope. But it happened to be part of the two pack with the uh, American President, so that made it really easy to get our our <sighs> second high rated movie. And then part four is just going to culminate all of this. <laughs> part four is going to be epic. <laughs> uh, but I am looking. I mean, it's Kevin Klein. Uh, it's directed by. Somebody, it's, it's a big name comedy director. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Sigourney Weaver is in it, so it's it should be, it should be good. Sigourney making her triumphant return to comedy, uh, to the podcast. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's been a while, and uh, yeah, Kevin Klein's first appearance. I I can't wait to see who else is in that movie because it was kind of a high profile release, so yeah. uh, it should be good. So that will do it for episode number 22. We have plugs. We do have plugs. As you noticed, as it began with episode number 21, we have new intro and outro music provided to us by the Festive Years. Our opening song is Last Stand. Our ending song is Summer of 99. Both songs are available on the album Don't Let Me Use You. Is that on iTunes, Julio? That is on iTunes, on Bandcamp. Just Google it. You'll find it. Or you can send us an email and I'll talk to Chris. But you should be able to get it online. And uh, do you have something else to plug this week, Julio? Yes. So I uh, kind of 
found this or it found me this podcast called everybody starts somewhere no gotta start somewhere so it's gss uh they uh they are they just started they have like four episodes in, in and uh it's basically it's a an austin-based podcast these two guys they're actors and they interview people from austin like that have kind of made it or, or have some made some sort of progress in the entertainment industry and then Every every episode, they talk to them, talk about their careers, how they got started, how they made it, how they made it so far. Uh, I've listened to a couple episodes; they were they were a lot of fun. They were really cool. So, uh, and they were pretty friendly. They reached out to me on Twitter, which was surprising. I guess somebody knows us somewhere. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I'm, I definitely recommend it. They're on iTunes, so it's uh, gotta start somewhere. And they even have a website that they mentioned. Uh, just probably gsspodcast.com. Check them out. Tell them that we sent you because that always goes over well. And Slam Masters Podcast, hosted by John Golson, who I caught up with at the last Inspire Pro show. Talked about his interesting takes on the new Star Wars trailer. So he doesn't really talk about that on that podcast, but listen to it anyway. <laughs> now you're going to get people are going to flog there to listen to controversial Star Wars opinions. Like wrestling? What the hell is this? Uh, but outside of that, that's going to do it for this episode of us here on The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. That's summer of 
live from Shreveport, Louisiana, via international satellite hookup, the victim of that hidden camera commercial, Michael Huff. Mr. Huff, how do you feel about your experience on hidden camera? Angry. Thank you. And thank you from Swedish television. Good night. <laughs>